Uh, we're back in Second Thessalonians, and uh, if you have your Bibles open, uh, or if you have your Bibles, turn them to Second Thessalonians, uh, chapter two, and we're going to spend our time this morning just reflecting on Paul's prayer, or asking a few questions about Paul's prayer as he ends this uh, section uh, to these Christians. Um, verse sixteen and seventeen of Second Thessalonians, chapter two. Paul prays this way. He says, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work. It's interesting to me that in the middle of Paul's discussion of theology and of reminding them of the events of the last days in which we live, uh, he doesn't just leave it with head knowledge. He works it down into prayer. And I think that's one of the things that as Christians we need to regularly remind ourselves is that prayer is a vital part of the Christian life. Uh, it's not just enough to know stuff in our heads. We, we actually take that stuff that we know and we apply it through prayer. We apply the promises of God through prayer. We apply the warnings of God through prayer. We apply the uh, commands of God through prayer. Prayer is really an expression of our life in Christ. If we have life in Christ, we pray. And so Paul has just concluded this uh, uh, amazing section on uh, those that are perishing, on those that are being saved, on the coming of the Antichrist, on the revelation of Christ himself. And he takes those things now and he applies them in prayers to these believers' life. I don't know if you do that on a regular basis for yourself after a Sunday morning service, say, or you do it for the congregation. I try and do it fairly regularly um, for you as God's people and for myself as we leave here or as I'm falling asleep on Sunday night. I'm thankful for a group of people that is praying during our first service and you're welcome to join them as they pray that the word of God would go forth not only in this church but in churches around here. They believe in the power of prayer. They believe that God tells us to pray and I hope you believe that as well. But one of the things I pray, it's, a, it's along these lines of Christ or our Heavenly Father, take the words that have been sung Take the words that have been read. Take the stories that have been taught to our children and drive it deep into the hearts and lives of your people. Help them to live with confidence. Help them to live in the fullness of what you have for them this week. I just take the words that we've talked about and I pray them for one another. You can do that as well. As you leave here, as you pray for your family, as you pray for your spouse. And so that's what God, Paul does here is he takes the word of God now and he prays. There's three things that Paul alludes to here. There's a lot more, but I've summarized them in three ways which just help me categorize. As he's, as he's giving this prayer, as he's praying this prayer, uh, these three things come to the surface. The first is simply, he references the relationships that we enjoy. It's helpful for us every once in a while to work through that in our lives. Um, sometimes it's the most basic things about scriptural truth and faith that are comforting and that are assuring we do live in a fairly big and in a fairly impersonal world. There's a lot going on in this world, and sometimes it's easy to feel alone. It's easy to feel disconnected. It's easy to feel sort of lost. And I don't know if you ever stop and sort of pinch yourself or remind yourself or say something like this. I can't believe it. Jesus Christ is my brother. He is my Lord. The King of Kings is my king, the Lord of lords, is my Lord. 
How in the world did ever little me come under the radar of him to be drawn into a relationship where I can say he is my Lord and my Savior? It's rather amazing, I I think, in the scheme of life to know that we have a relationship with such a person. We strive in life to have relationships with so many people to try and be connected with the right business people, to try and have the right friends at school or the right friends in church or the right relationships in, 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 in a sporting event. Here we, have, we are told that we have relationships with two of the most significant people in the universe. When was the last time you stopped and in the midst of your anxiety or your fears, in the midst of the things that sort of consume you or overwhelm you, the circumstances of your life that seem to just press in on you, that you think about God and you, you think about God and you, you, you remind, he's the maker of heaven and earth. God is the one that holds this world together. God is the one that has a purpose for this world. He knows it's beginning from its end. He is directing it. He is guiding it. He is powerful, he is wonderful, and he is my father. That's what Paul says here to our Lord Jesus Christ and God our Father. Does that not ever catch you off guard? Does that not ever, do we take it for granted or do we take it for granted because we don't really understand that? One of the things I realize about people is we, we, we want to find our roots. We, we want to know who our parents were. We want to know who our father is and our mother is, where we came from. As a child of God, this God that I've described is our father. The truth of Paul's prayer is rather extraordinary. We'll come back to that in a moment. One for the order. He puts there, he says, now then may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father. It's, it's significant that he mentions our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ himself first and God the Father second. Order matters. And this is a very young church, not long after Christ's death and resurrection and ascension into heaven. And what Paul is doing by that is He's putting Christ and God on the same footing. He's putting them on the same level. By by doing that, by by having that order in the way that it is, it's a subtle way that Paul has of expressing this wonderful truth that the Lord Jesus Christ is God, that he is equal to God the Father, that he is deity. And one of the other astounding things about this, and English language doesn't pull it up as, easily as, uh, as the Greek language, but we have the plural of, 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 of the God of Christ and of God our Father, but their works are expressed in singular actions. So the verbs loved and gave are singular. And it, it's a further way of identifying God the Father who are two who act together as one. They have loved us and they have given these things to us. It's just a subtle way of Paul reminding us of who it is that we are in relationship with. God who is one in essence and three in person. Come back to think just about this for a moment. Notice he says, our Lord and Savior himself. Why this note himself? Why not just our Lord Jesus Christ? 
Well, I think it's one way of Paul saying, we're not in relationship with a representative of Christ. We're not in relationship with, with one that Christ has sent to represent him. We are in relationship with Christ himself. The one who walked on this earth, the one who is the eternal son of the father, we are in relationship with him. This one who walked on the earth in flesh and with flesh and blood as we do, he knows suffering, he knows affliction, he knows persecution, he knows joy, he knows sorrow, he knows hunger, he knows suffering. He is our brother. He is our savior. He is our king. There is no other name under heaven by which we men be saved except through the name of Jesus Christ. It's this amazing just reminder that we are in relationship with him. We call him our brother. We call him our savior. We call him our king. But then he also says, God, our father. As I mentioned, the one who created the world, the one who guides and directs the world, that God, that God is our father. We have been adopted into his family. We read scriptures and it reminds us of the intimacy of that relationship. Matthew in chapter six, verse seven says, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard by many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our father who art in heaven. Isn't that an amazing statement? That we don't need to beg with God. We don't need to pummel him with words and with repeated words and repeated phrases. We simply need to come, come to him who already knows what we need and simply say, Father, I need help today. Father, I'm anxious today. Father, I'm worried today. Father, I don't know where I'm going to get a job today. Father, I don't know where I'm going to live. Father, help me. Or in Matthew chapter 6, 31, therefore don't be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all of these things and your heavenly Father knows you need them all. It's amazing, we don't see kids in our home anxious about whether or not we're gonna be able to put a roof over their head, generally. They're not anxious about having clothes in their closet. They're not anxious about food in the fridge. We as dads just look after that. That's one of the things that, that, that we just do as mothers and fathers, as dads, we make sure there's a roof over the head of our families and that they have food and clothing. In another place, it says, as a father shows compassion on his children, that is generally the attitude of fathers towards their kids. Not always, but generally, as fathers show compassion to their children, so your heavenly father shows compassion to you. That's amazing. That's the relationship that we have with Christ and with God. Christ is our Lord and Savior God is our Father. And there's a third sort of implication that comes out of that, that our, O-U-R, ties us together as a people of God. There's not like 15 families that you and I belong to. 
we don't have options about uh, who our brothers and sisters are in the Lord, in the household of God. We are all there is. The persons in front of you and behind you and beside you, they are your brothers and sisters. We don't have the, the luxury, if we want to call it a luxury, I don't think it's a luxury. We don't have the luxury of saying, well, they're not part of my family. Therefore, I can ignore them or therefore I can mistreat them or therefore I don't have to resolve issues with them. We are brothers and sisters in the same household of God. We have been adopted by the same father. When you look at one another, not only in this fellowship, but in all those fellowships that profess Christ as their Lord and Savior, we are related by adoption to God. I am so thankful for the love that so many of you show. I hear about it. You don't always know that I know, but I hear about just the many ways in which you show love for brothers and sisters in Christ that are part of this fellowship. And I encourage you even more to increase in your love for one another, that when the Spirit of God prompts you and you become aware of a need that one of your family members have, meet it. Do what you can to resolve the problem. But also on the flip side, it also says we should also be quick to resolve our differences. We should also be quick not to hold bitterness or anger towards one another. Just as you in a home want to have peace in the home, so as a family, we ought to have peace with one another. And so in this phrase, when Paul says, now may our Lord Jesus Christ and God our Father, it reminds us of the relationships that we enjoy, not only with Christ and with God, but the relationship that we enjoy with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Secondly, Paul references something of the riches that we possess. We talk about material wealth and we can calculate material wealth by physical property, by numbers on a bank statement. But how do you calculate spiritual wealth? How do you work that through in, in your minds? When, when we say the riches that we possess spiritually, what goes through your head and your heart? I was thinking of this and I was reminded of Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Forget none of his benefits. And then it describes the benefits of God. He forgives all of your iniquities. His mercy and compassion towards us as sinners. The spiritual riches that are ours because of the mercy and grace of God, the benefits that we receive because of the largesse of God. What about in Ephesians 1.3 where it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. That is innumerable wealth. That is incredible riches. Can you think about the love of God before the foundation of the world? When you think about your adoption into the family of God, when you think about your redemption through Christ Jesus, when you think about the inheritance that you will receive when you die and when Christ comes back, that's incredible spiritual wealth. Or in 2 Peter where it says, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and to godliness. God has given us incredible riches. Peter mentions two of them that I just want, or Peter, Paul mentions two of them that I just want to focus on for a moment. There's the riches of God towards us in the past. It says 
that our Lord Jesus Christ and God our Father loved us. Past tense. That's an incredible bit of wealth that you and I have. Relational wealth. To know that we are secure in the love of God. That the love of God is not a flighty thing. That the love of God is not a temperamental thing. That the love of God is not rooted in my response to him in any way. As we mentioned last week, God just loves us because he loves us. I think any of us who have struggled to find a relationship where we feel loved, this is amazing news. We, we sometimes struggle with, well, if they really know who I am, will they love me? Or if I do this, will they continue to love me? Or how can I completely expose myself and know that I'm loved? We don't have to worry about any of that with God. As children of God, it says he loved us before the foundation of the world, before we had done anything good or bad. I think many people would give every penny they owned to be loved like that. Zephaniah has been a passage that I have gone to for a number of years now, ever since it was sort of drawn to my attention and drilled into me. Some call it the John 3.16 passage of the Old Testament. But Zephaniah 3.17, it says, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. One person described it as the most exquisite and rapturous description of God's love in the Bible. Long ago, Jeremiah says, God said to Israel, I have loved you, my people, with an everlasting love. With unfailing love, I have drawn you to myself. God's love doesn't dry up. God's love can never be spent. God's love is an eternal fountain, so to speak, that ever flows to his people. Charles Spurgeon once wrote, to hear the love of God is sweet. To believe it is most precious. But to enjoy it is paradise below. How are we as God's people in enjoying the love of God? Are you just overcome once in a while by reflecting on the fact that you are loved by the maker of heaven and earth. Sometime, sometimes you read in scripture verses that stop you in your tracks. And this was the case with me a number of months ago as I was trying to think where should we go next after we have done Thessalonians. And I was thinking about preaching through the book of Malachi. I try and alternate New Testament, Old Testament, and so, of course, Thessalonians is New Testament, so we got to go to the Old Testament. So I just started to read Malachi, and I only got to verse 2. And it says there in chapter 1, it says, God just makes this declaration, I have loved you to Israel. What an amazing statement. We find that again and again in Scripture, I have loved you. 
It's a reminder by God to us to reflect on his care for us. It's one of the greatest ways, I think, to begin this last book of the Bible with this declaration of God to his people, I have loved you. And I can think of a number of ways in which the following verses could flow from that, but none of them at all came close to what actually follows that statement of God. I have loved you. What follows that is the response of the people. How have you loved us? That's got to be one of the all-time memory lapses of human history. It really is. It's, it's got to be one of the, I think, the most significant sort of reminders of, really? I, I can't imagine a son or a daughter responding to a mom or a dad who says to them, boy, I love you, honey. Really? How have you loved me? Prove it. Demonstrate it. Not by my calculations, you haven't loved me. If you've ever doubted the love of God and if you've ever doubted the patience of God's love towards you, think through verse three of Malachi chapter two and ask yourself, I wonder how God might respond if that's how I responded to his declaration of love. Back in 2019, I came across a book which um, the author I've read now, almost all that he's written, and I don't say this that you should go out and get it because different authors and different books meet us at different times, but for me it was a significant help to me as I wrestled through experiencing the love of God. And the title of the book was simply Objects of His Affection, Coming Alive to the Love of God. And it's what I needed to know in my life. I, I needed to come alive to the reality that God loved me. Oh, I've heard it a gazillion times. I believe it, but I, I never really felt it and sort of experienced the love of God. And it's a study and uh, a story of one's heart's journey in coming alive to this compelling love of God. I think it's echoed in Paul's prayer to the Ephesians when Paul prays for them. He says, I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses understanding. Do you know the love of God? Have you experienced the love of God? Have you come alive to the love of God? I don't think there's anything worth more than experiencing the love of God. Oh, love of God that will not let me go, the hymn writer says. So there's the riches of God's love. There's also the riches of his grace. Paul prays there, he says, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us. What has he given us? He's given us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. The riches that you and I receive through grace are incalculable just so we understand what grace means, this is a really simple definition. Mercy means not receiving from God what we deserve. Grace means receiving from God what we don't deserve. 
And so the Bible talks again and again of the riches of God's grace. In one place, it talks about the praise of his glorious grace. In another place, it says, as I've already mentioned, the riches of God's grace. There he's talking about re redemption and adoption and God's love to us. Um, Paul speaks, uh, or Peter speaks of the God of all grace. Uh, we realize that the grace of God is visible. We can see the grace of God at work amongst people. Um, uh, Paul, in one book, I think it's Titus, says the grace of God appeared. How did it appear? It appeared in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus is a physical manifestation of the grace of God to us. In another place, we read so that, uh, that we have been saved so that in the coming ages, he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Do you ever think about what are the riches of God's grace? Do you ever work through redemption and adoption and election and marvel at their worth? You can't buy them. You can't earn them. It's not like we come up to God and say, man, that's a family I want to belong to. God, adopt me. God sets his love on us and adopts us into his family. The riches of his grace. Here, Paul mentions too, eternal comfort and good hope. Uh, eternal comfort is the sort of the, the, the realization that the goodness of God to us is not temporal. It's not temporary. It's eternal. That the things that God has done for us in the past and continues to do for us in the present, he will carry forward into the eternal future. God's love for us is eternal comfort. We know that God loved us before the foundation of world, that God continues to love us now, and that God will love us into eternal, eternity future. We know that nothing can snatch us out of the hand of God. We know that nothing can separate us from the love of God. We know that God who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it in us. That is eternal comfort. That reminds us that I can never be lost. It reminds us that with God there is no lost causes. It reminds us that God has no unfinished projects. I will not be one of his unfinished projects. That is eternal covenant or a comfort. Oh, love that will not let me go. I find enormous comfort in that. Oh, that love may discipline me, but that love will never let me go. I have eternal comfort as I think about the realities of the promises that God has for me. I have a home in heaven. Everything I have on earth can be taken away. It can be burned. It can be stolen. It can be confiscated, but I have a home in heaven and God will get me there. I have a father in heaven who loves me. I have a high priest in heaven who intercedes for me. My citizenship is in heaven. That's where I belong. I'm going to get there. No matter what the world throws at me, no matter what the circumstances of my life, no matter what I suffer, no matter what the affliction might come my way, no matter how the war of the evil one against me wages, I have an eternal comfort waiting for me in heaven. And good hope. I think the good hope, there's lots of hope that we have, but I, I think the, the content of the good hope is what Paul has already talked about, and that's the good hope of the return of Jesus Christ. 
the revelation of Jesus Christ that will mark the end of this age and all its battles, the appearance of Jesus Christ, which is the blessed hope of the church, the coming of Christ and our being gathered together with him. That is a good hope, is it not? No matter what you face, no matter what you endure, no matter how we suffer, no matter how we're afflicted, Paul encouraged them and he encouraged us with the fact that God is just and there is coming a day at the revelation of Jesus Christ when we will be brought into Christ's presence and we will be glorified with him. That is good hope. That is part of the riches of God's grace. That good hope. And then finally, the responsibility that we have, and this is now the application of of Paul's prayer. This is actually what he prays for. As he reminds them of the relationship that they enjoy, as he reminds them of the riches that they possess, he now just reminds them of the responsibilities that they have. And two words words capture that. that, This is what he prays for. May God comfort your hearts and may God establish your hearts. That's where we really need help sometimes, right, is in our hearts. Our hearts sometimes waver. Our hearts sometimes are weak. Our hearts sometimes are not stable. We need to feel the comfort of God inside of us. We need to feel the establishment or the strength of God. That word strength is a Greek word, sterizo, from which we get steroids from. We need the sterilization of our hearts, so to speak, the strengthening of our hearts by God. We need this internal work of God as we face all the trials and the difficulties that we face in life. Isn't that what we need? When, when you go out, and some of you are going to go out in very difficult times, you're going to go out and you're, you're going to have physical suffering. Some of you are going to go out and you're going to have relational suffering. Some of you are going to face challenges this week that you don't know yet are coming. What do you need? You need a heart that will hang in there. You need a heart that will be able to walk you through that. Why do we need this eternal work of God? He says, may you have your hearts comforted and established. Why? For every work and word. So that as we go out into the world, we won't give up. So that as we go out into the world, we, don't, we won't walk away from God. So that as we face affliction, as we face suffering, we, we, won't, we won't do so um, neglecting God's care and love for us. This is what he's been trying to remind these Thessalonian Christians. As you suffer, as you go for, through life, as you enjoy life, as God works in your life, hang in there, hold on. Like in every work, in every word, as you testify, as you live, as you serve, as people watch you. May they look at your life. May they hear your words and glorify God. This is what I need. This is what I need when I get up Monday mornings and I'm tired or I'm not sure what the week might hold. I need to be strengthened inside so that when I go to work and when I speak, my words will be glorifying to God and my actions will be glorifying to God. What an incredible prayer of Paul, as he summarizes all that he has said to them now, God give you a good heart to work for him and to speak for him. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the encouragement that we find in it. I thank you that Paul doesn't just deal with stuff of the head, but he deals with stuff of the heart. And Father, we need to be reminded of that. I thank you for your people that are gathered here. I thank you for this family, Father. We are family. These are our brothers and sisters together. 
Father, may we never forget that we are united by a singular Father and a singular Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May that spur us on to love and good deeds towards one another. May it remind us to deal with bitterness and anger towards one another. And Father, may you strengthen our hearts and establish our hearts so as we go back out now into the worlds in which we live and the places that you have called us to, that our lives may represent you through our work and through our words in such a way as to draw attention to you. Thank you for your work in us. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for the riches of your grace which you have lavished upon us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.